What goes into making an iconic building in America? What are the stories and who are the people behind the next generation of architecture? If your work touches the real estate industry in any way, or you're just curious about what goes into one-of-a-kind cities and towns all across our country, join us on the American Building Podcast. In season two, we learn about everything from skyscrapers to single-family homes, from the famous and soon-to-be-famous designers and developers responsible for them. This season focuses particularly on the pandemic and how our buildings will change in response. Our sponsor is the iconic design firm, Michael Graves Architecture and Design. And now your host, award-winning architect turned entrepreneur, Atif Khadr, AIA. This is American Building and I'm your host, Atif Khadr. We are recording from the historic home of world-renowned architect, Michael Graves in Princeton, New Jersey. Check out this amazing space for yourself at the Michael Graves Architecture and Design YouTube channel. Now let's build something. Today, our guest is architect Kirk Mitchell. Kirk is the founder and principal at AKT Designs, an architecture and interior design firm based in Bergen County, New Jersey. He focuses on residential projects across New York and New Jersey. That includes new construction and renovations of single family and multifamily buildings. He has a particular expertise in combining historic details with modern technology, having completed over 80 townhouse projects as AKT Designs and previously as the Director of Design and Construction for Dixon Advisory. We'll be talking about 432 Woodland, a spectacular renovation of a single family home in Englewood. That is in the Palisades, a stunning cliffside part of Northern New Jersey. We will put that project into the context of COVID and how home designs have changed over the past year. So thank you so much for being with us here, Kirk. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start with your parents. So both of your parents are artists. Could you talk about the influence that they had on your interests as a kid? Absolutely. Growing up in a family of artists, I saw everyday use of different mediums and I saw their passion for art, which really rubbed off on me and my siblings. One of the things we did notice is that our parents weren't artists professionally, meaning they didn't make money. They didn't know how to monetize it. And they had their own, they're both in their own different industries that had nothing to do with art. And one of the things I realized is that I didn't want to become a struggling artist, which was so known when I was a child. I never really saw any rich artists or someone that I could relate to that figured out how to monetize their talent. So when I was young, I went to art camps, art schools, and I spoke to one of my professors, my teenage high school, our art class. His name is Mr. Otoshin. And I asked him about if I'm looking to go into school, I didn't know what I wanted to major in because I didn't want to be a struggling artist. And I didn't know exactly what I can do that it's going to allow me to exemplify this passion. He said, have you ever looked into architecture? And I didn't. I didn't know much about architecture, but I started doing a little bit of background research, and he introduced me to a mechanical drafting class. And as soon as I learned more about it and read more about it, I instantly fell up. Excellent. And from there on, you went to Howard University and then Carnegie Mellon to study architecture. Could you talk about what your experiences were like there? 
Sure thing. Howard University, my older cousin went to when I was a junior in high school. I went to visit the school and I fell in love with it. And I knew from that point on that that was the school I wanted to attend down in Washington, D.C. I applied to about seven or eight different schools and I got into mostly all of them. But the only one I was worried about was Howard University, which is the last one that I was accepted to. So that was one of the best days of my life for myself, my family, my friends. Everybody knew how important it was for me. But one of the things was that I was scared that if I tried to apply for admission with architecture as my major, being that I didn't have any experience in architecture, that I wasn't going to get in. So I applied as a liberal arts major, undecided. And that way, once I got accepted, I got into school, but it took me a year to get to transfer into architecture because of the prerequisite classes that you have to have for fall semester. So once I got into the architecture program at Howard, I immediately fell in love with it. And one of the things that I loved about Howard, besides the professors that were there, which were mostly practicing professionals that had their own firms or worked for larger firms, was that it was a small class size. And our class, the entire architecture class, started out to be about 125 people. By the time we graduated, it was close to 25 people. And an architecture school When you first get into school, they sit you down and they tell you, if you're into this profession for money, you may want to leave now. They actually use the term, you don't get paid until you're gray. (laughs) So a lot of people left. And even through the years, a lot of people left because it's a very demanding major. One of the ways you can see this is when you walk into any architectural design studio, any college across the country, you'll see beds or you'll see lounges or couches. You're like, Yeah, you're like, why are these convertible couches in the design lab? Because you're going to be sleeping there, pulling all-nighters. So uh, it's something that brought our class together because we were small. We all helped each other. We supported each other. And uh, we got through some late nights and some awesome projects together. During my freshman year at Howard, the Hillier Group, which is a very large architecture uh, firm, one of the largest in New Jersey at the time, came to Howard University and interviewed some students for internships. So I was lucky enough to win an internship in the Newark office location. So when I came home for summers and winters, I worked at the Hillier Group, which was in Newark, New Jersey. And then I did so well there that I got another internship in D.C. So those were my my three first internships while I was in school to really give me a, a jump start on the industry. Excellent. And then your professional career that started at Marchetto Higgins Steve under architect Dean Marchetto, who I've heard called the godfather of Hoboken and Jersey City in terms of architecture. What role did you play at the firm and how did that help in developing your own career as an architect? Sure. Well, I was doing some amazing things while at Howard when I learned 3D Studio Max and his 3D programs in CAD. So I started doing some really awesome renderings for the projects I was designing in in design at Studio. And what I did was one of the administrators at Howard University told me that there was a scholarship and it was in northern New Jersey, where I'm from, northern New Jersey, and for the AIA, Northern New Jersey League. So I submitted a bunch of my renderings and designs, and I ended up winning the Architect Intern of the Year Award. And this is 2003 three or one. Anyway, besides the point, right after I got that award, about three different architectural firms or architects came up asking if I would be interested in interviewing. One of those architects was Dean Marchetto. 
And I got a call and I got an interview with Dean. At the time, it was Dean Marchetto Architects before they changed their name. And then I was lucky enough that even though I got the job, Dean understood that I was going to go away to Carnegie Mellon for my master's degree. So he allowed me to work summers and winters until I finished that program. And then I worked full time. That's awesome. And then the last job that you had before starting your own firm was with Dixon Advisory. What did you do there and what was your learning experience there like? Sure. So Dixon Advisory is a financial advisory company, private out of Australia. And one of their CFOs originally from Jersey City. And when we had the downturn in the market, that CFO went to the uh, CEO of Dixon, his name is Alan Dixon, and told him about the idea of starting a real estate investment trust back in the northern New Jersey area because you can acquire properties for pennies on the dollar at the time. So that encompassed Hudson County and in Manhattan and Brooklyn. So they started acquiring, buying up properties around, they started in two thousand late 2011. And then once they started getting into the higher end properties and doing large renovations, they figured that they needed an architect that would help them not just design, but walk them through the entire process, construction and construction management. So they started a subsidiary of the company called Dixon Projects, which was design and construction management. And I was hired as the head architect for that. And what I got an opportunity to do is essentially build an architecture firm within that real estate investment trust. So I had all the equipment, all the software that we needed, and we hired uh, three young architectural interns. We hired about eight interior designers, a few project managers. So when I first uh, came to Dixon or went to Dixon, it was about 50 people. And then by the time I left four years later, it was a little over 150 people. And I was managing up to 16 staff of very talented architects, designers, interior designers, and project managers. So given that you had so much independence and had such a large role in the growth of that firm, why did you end up leaving and how did you know that it was time to leave? Well, I've always wanted to be in practice for myself. I've always wanted to. I'm an entrepreneur by spirit. So I've always looked at having full-time jobs as an uh, opportunity to gain as much experience and as much knowledge as possible in order to take that to start my own practice. So I've had several different companies during my youth. I've been a general contractor, architectural, I guess, moonlighter, (laughs) for lack of a better term. And I've also did a lot of real estate investing, buying investment properties and managing them. So when I found Dixon, Dixon kind of married all three. It married the construction, the architecture, and real estate investment all under one roof. So I had a plan. I just didn't know when because I was being paid very well. It was, a, it was kind of like a family-oriented company. We had a lot of fun. We had amazing projects. And the cool thing about working for a real estate investment trust is I could design something today in six months it's actually built. If you're working for an architecture firm, sometimes you got to wait a few years to see your projects come to fruition. While at Dixon, I did over 300 townhouses with them, anything from one to four families. And it grew an amazing portfolio. But it also became a time that when you're buying in real estate, you're buying when it's low. That way you can make money. So when they first started buying in 2011, it was still after the recession that we had here and all over the world. So they got houses considerably cheap. Once we got into, I came on a board early 2013. So by the time 2014, 2015 rolled around, properties were a lot more expensive. Because they were a lot more expensive, 
we had to limit the budget, the construction budget of things that we were doing to it. So I got a chance to do some amazing work there, meet amazing people, work with amazing people. But I knew that, okay, the market isn't going to stay on fire the way it was. It was going to get soft and it was about time to start making my move. So what I had to do, I gave myself a year plan and I couldn't tell anybody about it. I had to be very secretive. And I started really reaching out to resources, reaching out to contractors that I know, real estate agents, attorneys, anybody in the field that can assist in supporting my launch. And then as the days go by after work, I work on my website, work on the portfolio, work on all the things that I needed to. So by the time I was ready to leave, I can hit the ground running. And that's what I did. I, matter of fact, I had a project that I JV'd with an architect friend of mine. His name is Steven Wilder. And we, we had a project in Plainfield, a 90 building that he landed and brought me aboard to assist. So I had a, a good, a nice project to kind of lead into. And then once I left and really went out there and used all of my full-time hours that I was giving to an employer and used it for myself, and then some things just uh, kind of opened up overnight. Yeah. And one of those uh, particular projects um, that will, like, when you left to start your own firm that we'll highlight today is 432 Woodland. So that's a single family home that you redesigned in Englewood. So for our listeners, can you describe this area, this part of New Jersey? Sure thing. So Englewood is located in Bergen County and Bergen County is northern New Jersey, right next to New York City. We're literally right next to the George Washington Bridge. So we are considered a suburb of the New York metropolitan area. I've grown up here most of my life. I'm a Bergen County boy, so I know the area very well. And Englewood is a little bit more of a city than the town that I'm from, Teaneck, which is more of a township. So in Englewood, you have a lot more larger density of people, and they're probably a bigger variety of, of classes and wealth. Portion. So you'll have apartment buildings and you'll have lower blue collar income, and then you have mega mansions for the super wealthy, all within one town. That's actually where my, my office is located in Englewood, Jersey. So I have a good lay of the land. Uh, I know a lot of people in Englewood, but one of these first uh, single family renovation projects was a friend of a friend. And that's typically how I get work through word of mouth and um, referrals. I have a really good friend that I grew up with. His name is Dr. Jason Baines. He's an orthopedic surgeon and he has an office in Englewood. And he has a group of young black doctors, prominent doctors in Bergen County that he golfs with and has good close friends with. And I'm too, I'm an avid golfer. So one day he gives me a call from the golf course and says, hey, I got a buddy of mine. He's one of the best plastic surgeons in Bergen County. He just put an offer on a house up on the hills of Englewood, and he's looking to do a complete renovation. Can you help him out? I said, I'll be here tomorrow. <laughs> Perfect. So that was the client for the project. And when you when you met him, what was the initial vision that he had for the project? So my client bought a, a ranch-style home on about, a, about an acre worth of property, which is normal for North Woodland. It's one of the most prominent artery streets through the hills of Englewood. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to do a complete cave, a uh, man's cave in the basement. Um, so the basement was a complete gut renovation. He wanted to redo the entire kitchen, 
master bedroom, master bathroom, all the bathrooms in the house, and just a complete cosmetic makeover to the rest of the home. Plus, he wanted to incorporate some new HVAC. So he had the idea that he wanted to do something like a ski chalet, 1970s, 80s ski interior. And how did you, did you like hold back your laughter there? <laughs> well, you know, it's, it's not professional to laugh in the face, but being that we're friends, I could. So I said, you know, I understand where you're coming from and I know where you're drawing the inspiration. However, that look is a bit dated now. And the problem with that is that if you go too strong in that direction, either your house is going to look dated now or dated later. At some point, it's going to be dated and the value is going to drop. So I said, I can definitely find a way to incorporate the natural woods that you like so much and the warm feeling of the chalet, but in a more modern format. So that's exactly what we did. One of the really cool things about this project is that the basement itself They had this elaborate HVAC system because they had basically a spa inside the basement. And HVAC means uh, heating, ventilation, air conditioning, right? So they had a mechanical system that was literally just for the spa downstairs where they had a whirlpool, hot tub, heated spa. They had a shower, a steam shower. I mean, they had the works. But it's been very old. There was a lot of mold down there. It was dated. And the ceiling heights were very low because of all this mechanical work. They were so low that the client couldn't use the basement for his enjoyment because all this mechanical work was taking up the ceiling space. So what we did was we had to re-engineer the entire HVAC system for the house just so that he could get all his ceiling height back, which ended up being about between eight and eight and a half feet. Before we started, it was right below seven feet. Oh, wow. That not, not only is that not good, that's probably not up to modern standards, right, in terms of codes? Exactly. Well, because they didn't have habitable rooms down there, they were just considering it rec rooms, and uh, I guess they got away with it, and it's done so long ago. But what one of my clients also wanted to do is put a habitable uh, legal bedroom downstairs. So as if in order to do that, you have to have a minimum uh, ceiling height. So what we did was we, we got rid of some really big ductwork, <laughs> And some really heavy stone that was uh, literally the hot tub was made out of stone. And we designed the system. We dropped it uh, down and then we, we split the system in the house. So now the upper floor was controlled by a air handler in, this, in the attic and the lower floors were handling on its own separate system. We also, in order to make the basement legal and habitable, we put a second means of egress by adding an exit stair out into the side yard. So we did that. We did a couple of egress windows in the new bedroom, and we added, besides a large open space, we added a second kitchen, which is, for, for all intents and purposes, it's a bar, but it's really a second kitchen. We did an exercise room and billiards area and a huge TV and a full bathroom. So that came out. The, and oh, we also added a, a brand new a stair, open riser stair, because the, the stair that was there would kind of separated the basement into two pieces and we wanted to feel like it was one whole space so we got an open riser stairs so you kind of see right through it so it sounds like the three key areas that it focused on was modernizing and upgrading all of the finishes that's kind of the first level the second thing being the the mechanical systems that supported everything that you wanted to do in the new layouts the new look and feel, and then like the more fundamental and structural one is the circulation. So the, does that sound like the right way of breaking it down? Absolutely, absolutely. And then upstairs, you know, 
to your point, we opened up the living and kitchen areas, created a large island because now most of the living is done in the kitchen space when you have guests come over. So we opened up the living room spaces as well. We did a killer master bathroom. So my client is a bachelor and he said he plans on being a bachelor for a good amount of time. So that's one of the reasons that he wanted the man cave. But the other reason was to have a really great master bathroom so he can impress the ladies. So we did a, a really cool walking, standing shower. It's like a human car wash. <laughs> uh, it has a steam shower. It has about, I want to say, six to nine sprays overhead. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And then we have a, a large whirlpool uh, a private toilet, and then my client's a little fancy. He went and bought this modern Japanese toilet that has it's all remote. It plays music and has lights. Yeah, lights and the seats warm, and <laughs> thanks you when you leave. And uh, <laughs> so we did that. We refitted all the closets to do master walk-in closets, and we did all the bathrooms in the house over. So we modernized the entire home. One of the things that he came to me, and, and this is not a lot of architects have experience also in the, the value proposition of doing renovations home. And one of the things he came to me and said, listen, I bought this home for a such and such price. It's a ranch. Everybody else on the block would knock these kind of homes down and build a $2 million, $3 million, $4 million mansion. He said, I don't want to overcapitalize. I want to keep to budget. And that way, when I'm out of this, after the renovation, I'm not at a point where I feel like I should have just ripped this down and built from scratch. So we were able to find that happy medium to modernize the entire house, but without making him regret it, not knocking it down and building something. So that given that there were a lot of steps in this process architecturally, and it sounds like there was a lot of decision-making in terms of finishes. Talk to us about the the design process. So from the initial description and the the ski lodge aesthetic that that he described to the, the final design that you presented, like what is the step-by-step in that process? Okay, so after what we call schematic design is when we're working with the floor plan layout because you gotta you have to make sure that you have a floor plan that's conducive to how the house is going to function, how you're going to live in the house. So once the floor plan was approved, then we started working on interior designs and moods. So what we do is either we'll do physical interior mood boards, but what we like to do even better than that is work off of Pinterest. Pinterest is a program that allows anybody to open up pages and pin images and then post comments to those images. So for instance, a lot of our clients, our private clients, it's hard for them to explain exactly what they like, but it's very easy for them to find pictures of what they like. Or if they go traveling, go to villas or hotels, they can take pictures and they can post them on this. And in that way, it creates a dialogue between us and the clients to say, okay, send us pictures of, ba- of your, your dream bathroom, your dream kitchen. You know, what do these spaces look like? What are the finishes that really are drawn in your eye? What are the colors? Now, there's so much that can be said and so the words when you share an image with somebody. So we set up a board for these different areas of the house and we have them pin images that they like. And we start pinning images back and saying, this is what we see. So we're trying to marry the client's desires. We're trying to marry their budget. And we're also trying to marry the design trends of time, right? Because we want to make sure that whatever we do, that we're adding value to the property and not taking away property. So 
after a collaboration of a couple of days, maybe a couple of weeks going back and forth the images and posts and comments, we really can narrow in on a client's desires and their needs. Once we started showing them how we can modernize the look and still try to emulate the ski chalet, it was sold through the pictures. But then what we did is we do interior renderings. That way, if we do 3D photorealistic renderings to show our clients what those spaces look like before they spend a dollar on buying any finishes, that way they can be completely satisfied prior to starting construction. That's kind of the process of how we get the look, the feel, the desired design, and how we communicate our ideas and vice versa. And then once we have kind of a signed off interior design, then we break up all those finishes into what we call a finish schedule. And we do a package of a finish schedule that essentially itemizes every finished product in a project. So that ranges anywhere from appliances, plumbing fixtures, lighting fixtures, flooring, paint, wall coverings, tiles, everything that you can think of that if you were to take a building and shake it, if it wouldn't fall out. And the reason I say that is because we don't concentrate on soft finishes. We have a designer that does that, but in-house we do hard finishes. So everything that's actually fixed to the home. Um, and then once we have this finished schedule package, along with the renderings, that goes with the construction drawings to a contractor to bid. This way, the client knows exactly how much their, let's call owner-supplied items will cost prior to it being bid. Sometimes if you don't have a tool like that, a contractor can bid prices or give you allowances and it's not very accurate. This also now gives the contractor, they know exactly from the rendering what the finished product should look like. They know when and how to order everything to their finished schedule because it's given to them early enough where if their items at long lead times, they can go ahead and order those sooner than later. And then it's just a great tool to minimize costly mistakes, which you know in construction could add up to be a lot. So it sounds like the tools that you have at your disposal in this design process, it's the mood boards, which can be virtual or like a print version. Uh, then there's renderings, there's construction drawings, and then there is a finishes list or a finishes schedule. What do you say, like, I mean, when, I think this past year, a number of friends that are renovating their townhouses in New York or they moved to the suburbs and bought new houses and all pretty frequently get text messages of like, should I choose this one or this one? Or do you like this style? <laughs> so amongst like the limitless options that you have at your disposal as a design professional, for example, for the tile, for the master bathroom that you were talking about, what process do you go through in order to take this limitless set of options to be something that is sensible for you to be looking at and then sensible for the client to make a decision about how does that work? So with the back and forth and Pinterest and other shareable images, we kind of get the idea of what the design is going to be. So that, that way we start to present different options and we'll present maybe three or four options, let's just say of a master bathroom uh, tile, but it won't just be the tile by itself. We'll present the tile along with the other finishes so they can see how it's incorporated into that look. Now we have a lot of vendors that we've worked with in the past that we know their price points we know that things will be readily available. So that way, it's easy for us. And we actually have some really good reps at, for instance, we use a uh, tile shop called The Tile Shop. <laughs> literally. <laughs> yeah, literally. And they're very popular in northern New Jersey and I believe New York. And we have a rep that I can just send them images and send them quantities and say, listen, I need something that looks like this within this price point and I need it by then. And they'll let me know if they can do it or not. And we have about four or five reps through different companies that do the same thing. 
Now, if it's something that's very special and a client comes to us and says, listen, I want this, I don't know, this bare skin covered floor tile, <laughs> then it's something we, we may have to search for. And, or if it's out of budget or if we can't find it, it's not going to work with our timeline. We try our, our best to find something as comparable as possible. It, it sounds like the, your ability to produce a really accurate, really beautiful, effective finishes schedule has a lot to do with the relationships that you've developed with all of these vendors for all these different products. Does that sound right? Absolutely. That and our interior designers are wonderful. Our head interior designer, Erica Gibson, she, I can show her something, a, a blank white subway tile, and she can pretty much tell me where to get it and how much it costs. I think that that's definitely, definitely an art. For me, I've used a Garden State tile for tile for, for many projects, and I find that that relationship helps a lot because uh, they can kind of fill in the gaps between our own knowledge as architects. Cool. And then I'm just going to take a break here to let our listeners know about some great news. So architect Vishan Chakrabarti will be one of our guests in season two. Vishan is the founder of design firm a Practice for Architecture and Urbanism, and he's also the dean of architecture at UC Berkeley. And he was actually one of my professors when I was at graduate school at Columbia. So subscribe to the American Building uh, podcast now so you don't miss uh, any of our amazing season two guests. So... The pandemic has changed a lot of the normal processes of residential design. And what would you say has been the biggest change in terms of the process and also like the physical layouts of, of, of homes that you've been working on? Sure thing. Yeah, homes. I mean, because of COVID, you'll notice that people were stuck in their house for almost a year and then they had to live with their families for a year, nine to five. And that included the kids running in and out of their home offices or uh, people trying to work on the dining room tables, trying to do their work while they're trying to virtually help their children in class. So a lot of people came to us looking to do extensions in their home. They needed more space. They realized they needed more space because there was nowhere for them to work, nowhere for them to work out, nowhere for them to get quiet or relax. So we got a lot of requests for extensions. We got requests for office spaces, home gyms, finished basements, new master bedrooms. A lot of people also, because of COVID, notice the real estate market here has gotten really hot. So it's pretty much a seller's market. And because a lot of people found out that they can get a substantially large amount for their homes, they wanted to do some renovations to see if they can increase the value of their property, either refinance and pull cash out or go ahead and sell. And with selling, they'd have to buy something and then they were looking to buy that. So it's almost like a, a cluster or a perfect storm that kind of changed the way people are looking at their homes or designing them. A lot of outdoor spaces, we've done like covered patios and outdoor kitchens and pools. Pools now can increase the value of your home from hundred dollars to $200,000. It's amazing. We've done pool houses. We've done a lot of these amenity spaces where typically somebody that was working from, I don't know, 8 o'clock in the morning to 6 p.m. out in the city or out at the office, they didn't have time to really enjoy their homes. And because of COVID, even if you had to go back to work, now you realize that it's more in life than just making money and uh, staying in an office. No, it's about enjoying the time, enjoying the money that you made and enjoying the ones that you love. So now we've kind of taken that theme and brought it into the design uh, spaces a little bit more intimate. And then you have these hideaway spaces, kids' rooms, kids' playrooms, 
private gyms. People, a lot of people that were scared to go to the gym, myself included. I had to set up a private gym in my house. A lot of people converted some of their, their garages into man caves or gyms. So we are seeing a lot of that. And we're seeing a lot of bounce back now too, where for instance, people were scared to spend money for a little bit on home. But now it's almost like it gave a lot of people a year to save their money. So given the, the fact that it seems like all of America is renovating their homes right now, another issue, like a consequence of that is material availability and costs due to supply chain disruptions. Could you talk about how that has affected your projects and how you try to mitigate those issues? Yes. So we've been very fortunate in that the time that materials, specifically lumber, I think that increased like 300%. At the time that that happened, our projects were either coming to completion or they were in a lot of the bigger projects were in phases of approval with the building department. And because COVID slowed everything down, it also slowed down approvals. So we got lucky enough that all the projects that had major framing were either already framed or hasn't, haven't started yet. So some of the items that we had, finished items, or there'd be flooring, cabinets, some mechanical equipment. It was on back order. So some of the projects got delayed, but other projects hold indefinitely. So we had a few development projects. We do a lot of uh, large-scale mixed-use development now, anywhere between 20 and 120 units. And some of those projects, because they couldn't get pilot programs or tax abatement programs through the city because COVID kind of shut down the cities, and they were worried about the skyrocketing price of materials, those projects got put on hold or they were finding difficulties getting them financed. So luckily, things are starting to go back to normal. But I know um, some of the underwriters for banks that are seriously looking at these projects differently because of construction costs and labor costs. Because so many, so, especially in this particular region of America, so many people are building and so many people are working that it's hard to find somebody. It's nearly impossible to find anybody to do a small job. In a larger jobs, so you're getting a tax you're getting, if you want it now, you're going to pay extra because we got a whole bunch of people waiting. And this is included for us. I mean, we don't put a tax on our work, but we're getting close to our bandwidth and we're trying to scale up our business because we have such a demand. We have um, been blessed to have a, a lot of contracts and deadlines coming soon. So, yeah. <laughs> I think that's something that you're correct in saying that it's something that design professionals as well as contractors have this, this glut of demand, this project over the past couple of years uh, or the past year specifically. One thing that has that is tied to that is this unprecedented flow of people and money from core urban areas like Midtown Manhattan and Brooklyn Heights to ring areas like Jersey City, like Hoboken, the North Fork, the South Fork, Hudson Valley, Western Connecticut. I think we have friends that have all gone off to these places. What do you see in terms of your pipeline? Do you see that being reflective where now you're doing projects all across this tri-state or are you seeing people staying put where they are and doing a lot of that renovation work in place in the house that they're in already? We get a, a, probably a mix of both. Again, we're very lucky to be located where we are. Being in the northern New Jersey, New York metropolitan area, you get the best of both worlds. One, you got New York City, and then right outside of New York City, you have the suburbs. And they're vastly different, especially when it comes to property values. If I were to look for, let's just say, a, a 2,000 square foot home in Manhattan, I could easily be paying $2 million dollars. 
Uh, for $2 million in the suburbs of New Jersey, literally 10 to 15 minutes away, you could probably have about a seven to 8,000 square foot newly built home with everything that you can possibly think of plus an acre of land. <laughs> so we've gotten lucky in that the people that left New York to go into the suburbs, we got them as clients. The people that thought they wanted to go to the suburbs or they moved up and they bought a larger home for more space within the city, we got them as well. Many architects in this area don't work both in New Jersey and New York because they're two different animals when it comes to approvals, when it comes to construction process. But we've been very fortunate that we have both markets um, because we have a lot of experience in, in both. So we do have our large share of clients that left Manhattan. They went to Brooklyn, they went to Queens, they came over here to Bergen County, Hudson County, Passaic, Essex County. So we got those clients, but we also got the clients, oddly enough, that they felt as though their mansions in the suburbs, it was too much, it was too much to take care of. Um, and the amount of money that they were spending or time that they were spending, uh, it could just be like hiring a landscaper, coming twice a week, spending $1,000 a week on, on an acre of land. But they wanted to move back into the city, be closer to their family, and then they spent money on, on brownstones. So we've oddly enough seen both the mass exodus out of New York City and then a small exodus back into the city. Okay. And I guess that creates opportunities for design, renovation of all of those, those properties that are being picked up again back in the city. So during this time, you've also pivoted towards multifamily and commercial projects, including several in, in Newark and New Jersey. Could you talk about some of those projects? Sure thing. We have a, a few of them. One right now under construction is a famous Don Pepe's restaurant in Newark, New Jersey, right off on Route 21. This is from one of my attorneys that works with our site plan applications, the end use attorney, his name is Chris Murphy. Some good projects for us. And Pepe, the owner of Don Pepe's, older gentleman, great businessman. He's been in business in Newark for over 40 years, um, knows exactly what he wants and, and how he wants it. And he needed a, he was hurting because he has a restaurant, just like most restaurant businesses during COVID. And New Jersey came out with a protocol that said that if you had a space that had 50% or more open space, then you were allowed your uh, standard maximum capacity and you wouldn't be limited due to COVID. So he wanted to do an extension. We did about a 2,000 square foot extension, one-story extension of his restaurant that is 50% open to the outside elements. And meaning we what we did was we used data wall folding door glass systems so that during uh, operational hours of the business, almost the entire walls can be opened up. And then once it's closed, it can be closed for security. But it's a really cool space. It should be opening in about a month. Uh, they move very quickly. Then we have other projects, um, large-scale projects. One is on Halsey Street, 289 Halsey Street, and that's a 40-unit residential multifamily building, four stories residential, over one-story parking and commercial. That's really cool space because Halsey is um, right downtown, not too many blocks away from Whole Foods, and uh, where Newark is changing every day very drastically. We got an opportunity to do a really nice building design there. And that one is in the building department now being reviewed for construction drawings, permits, so that we can start uh, hopefully breaking ground in the next month or two. 
So it sounds like with all of these projects from Newark to Manhattan, small projects, big projects, you're incredibly busy. So what, from your experience, is an, an important part of being able to be really efficient with your team and, and the production, like collaboration? What would you say are the, the most important things in managing a team to be able to do all of this stuff? Absolutely. First is the right team, right? The right team members. You have to have the right people in position to, you want to delegate certain things that people are good at and people enjoy, right? One of the things I learned early is that if you're pigeonholed in doing something that you hate, you're not going to be very good at it, just like we spoke towards in the beginning. So when you find somebody that has a passion in something like I did for design, then you want to emerge them in design and they will come out uh, successful. So we have the right team members, the right consultants, the right staff to be able to handle these projects, but also to create a template. So we have a template for our New York projects, a template for our New Jersey projects. And we try to stick to that template as best possible to streamline the design and the production process. One of the great things that I learned at DMARCHETTO's with this type of scale building, which is what we used to work on, the, the mid to high rise multifamily building, mixed use buildings, is that you want a very comprehensive good looking set of drawings. If you're if nobody can read your drawings, then they're pointless, right? <laughs> if you can't find something, if it's too cluttered, if you have so many dimensions that you can't read any notes on your drawings, then you're gonna get a lot of questions, you're gonna get a lot of change orders. Change orders means a lot of money, a lot of blown money. So by creating these templates, trying to have as a most comprehensive, attractive set of drawings that we can, it helps kind of fill in the void of that, those gaps. So right team members, um, having a good template in order to streamline the production process, and then knowing your clients' wants. One of the big things is we make sure to not let our design egos get in the way of our clients' pockets or our clients' vision. Just like the initial client with the, the, the chalet, the ski chalet, we could have said, no, no way, no way, we're not designing anything like that. That's not, our, no, we wouldn't do anything. We're not going to put our name on a ski chalet. But we say, I want to let you know, I want to manage your expectations that you may not love this at the end result, but we think we can find a happy medium. So it's important, especially for the developers, if they need a certain amount of units to make a project feasible, then we have to make sure that we get them those amount of units. And then if we can't, try to find other um, creative ways of regaining that lost value. Excellent. And if our listeners want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? I can be emailed directly. My email is kirk, K-I-R-K, at A-K-T dash designs with an S dot com. You can check out our website, uh, www.akt dash designs dot com. Or you can reach out to Atif and Atif can give me a look. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. I'm happy to do that as well. So, uh, Kirk, thank you so much for joining us today on the American Building Podcast. If you want to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of how iconic buildings in our country were designed and built, subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever it is that you like to listen. We all know that real estate is a tough industry to make it. So how can professionals stand out and make a name for themselves in today's world? Uh, hear from me, the team at Michael Graves, and many of our spectacular guests like Kirk on what we did to make it where we are. Grab our exclusive guide, seven tips on how to stand out in your field at AmericanBuildingPodcast.com. Finally, we live in the richest country in the history of humankind. We must reach beyond the boundaries that we see and the boundaries that we create. 
in order to help build homes and communities. Today, Kirk and I have made donations to Future Forward for Haiti, an organization that packs food for underprivileged uh, children in Haiti. I encourage you, our listeners, to support their worthwhile work as well. My name is Atif Kader, and this has been American Building by Michael Graves.